Friends, there's so much that we don't know about the book of Hebrews. There is no certainty whatsoever about authorship, other than that it was definitively not written by Paul. The writing style is completely different. There's no certainty about timing, though a very late century reference from Clement of Rome makes it, seems to refer to it, and, and if so, that means it was written before 90. There's no certainty about who it was written to, other than that it's addressed to a Christian community that the author has had a deep relationship with sometime in the past. The title Hebrews seems to be somebody's later attempt to guess at the audience. And if you were to read the book of Hebrews with all the references to Christ's rootedness in God's covenant with Israel and details about the Mosaic law and all the emphasis on Jesus as the high priest who fulfills God's promises, it's understandable that someone throwing a title on there might see the, the Jewish roots and say, ah, this is a book, the book of Hebrews. It's unlikely, however, that this was for a Jewish Christian church. As we know from Paul and other early theologians, the Jewish roots of Christianity were important to teach and share with every believer, regardless of their ethnic and religious background. Even though we don't know which community church is being addressed, we do know some important things about the congregation. And that knowledge comes primarily from chapter 10, in a section that is soon after today's passage from chapter 9. Starting with 10.32, and you can follow this if you want to in your, in your pew Bibles, the preacher asks the community to recall its earliest days as a church. After you had been enlightened about Christ's resurrection and God's new way, and your condition as a saved people was secure, you could endure anything. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You were publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and you were sometimes partners with others going through that struggle. You had compassion on each other in prison. You cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, and you did all that knowing that you yourself possessed something better and more lasting. That's the behavior of the faithful community that the writer remembers. He shares the memory with healthy pride, I think. But the way he presents this memory, it seems that it might not be the operating condition, the continued posture of the church community anymore. He says in verse 32, again of chapter 10, Do not, dear friends, abandon that confidence of yours, for your confidence brings a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It sounds to me like some time has passed, and the high point of believing, the good news aha moment, the total confidence in the resurrection had subsided. And the writer pleads with them to keep going. For you can't receive the rewards of a living and active connection with the resurrected Christ if you're not continuing and enduring in that relationship with the risen and resurrected Christ and doing the work that Christ calls you to do. Verse 39, we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but rather we're among those who have faith and so are saved. Can you hear it with me? This community sometime earlier, maybe 20, 30 years earlier, had accepted hook, line, and sinker the good news of Christ's resurrection. They'd accepted that Christ had defeated death and that salvation was at hand. They started living as if the change had already occurred. This community was all in and was willing to face the consequences of living Christ's way in the world, come what may. 
and their actions as a redeemed and restored and resurrected people were magical, right? Living in the condition of salvation, they experienced moments where it really did seem like they could do all things through Christ who strengthened them. But it sounds like now the community, that, that same community that went through a radical, evangelical moment of complete transformation, reception of the good news, they were now exhausted. The confidence had been replaced by doubt, fatigue, and the school of hard knocks. Who knows exactly what they were facing, but there were clearly cracks in that armor of Christ that they'd put on so confidently years prior. The people had some weaknesses in their knees now. In fact, in chapter 12, 12, the preacher says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Do you ever have times like this? Does the complete and total exuberance of connecting with Jesus Christ and with God fade sometimes? Do disturbing things in your own life or in the life of dear family and friends or in the church or in the life of the world just tear at your heart and soul? Do you ever get caught in the cycle that suggests the age of sin has not been defeated? Do you ever begin to doubt that the new age has begun? The longer each one of us lives, the more opportunities we have to see how totally off some things are and how much hurt there is. How can we claim Jesus really has transformed all things when all things are clearly not transformed? I imagine the congregation in the book of Hebrews was going through a, a time like this. They were exhausted and not so sure anymore. So what is the answer to their scenario? Does the writer start trying to undo the things that weigh people down? Does the writer go issue by issue through the exhausting process of rehashing and trying to reconcile each and every situation that's out of line with the will of God? No. That might be the job of some other profession, but it is not the job of the preacher of the resurrection. The preacher doesn't go down that road at all. This preacher of Hebrews isn't interested in engaging sin at all. Instead, the answer offered by the preacher is a nine-chapter Christological jumpstart to the community. The writer reminds the, the reader, chapter after chapter, that this new age is not defined by sin because of Jesus Christ. It's over, done, finished, get off it. Would you stop talking about what's broken as if Christ hasn't fixed it already? The preacher gives this sermon to a church in a world that's dripping with problems. And that's the good news that I want to highlight today from our lectionary passage, especially as it's conveyed at the end of chapter 9. The writer says in 926, As it is, Christ has appeared already once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hear it again. The, the preacher says, I don't want to act like we're all spun up in a downspout of sin anymore. We're not. That doesn't mean there aren't things to apologize for, to work through, or to undo. It doesn't mean that there aren't endless structural abuses and messes. It just means Christians don't operate as if you live under an umbrella of morass. Live like you're under a rainbow. The thing over us is a rainbow. The thing over us is grace and resurrection. Start there with that assumption. The preacher goes on and makes this point about the end of sin so much stronger, I think, in verse 28. And I quote, look, Christ will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin. It says that exactly, but not to deal with sin. What? Isn't that the whole final judgment thing? Judgment's mentioned here, but then 
Paul, I mean, the writer of Hebrews immediately moves past that and says not to deal with sin. Christ isn't going to deal with sin even at the end of time. Sin was already dealt with. The cloud already lifted. This isn't what the second coming is all about. Christ is coming to save those who eagerly wait for Christ. The sin narrative is no longer the narrative that matters to Jesus. Christ is not coming to condemn. Christ is coming to fully, train, fully save and transform all things on earth as they are in heaven. Friends, there's a lot of hurt in this world. And some of it needs to be delved into and undone. There's a lot of violence and suffering and pain, and I'm not blowing it off or pretending it isn't real. And I hope you've heard enough sermons from me where I go down those roads very deep. But I heard something important today when I read Hebrews, and I hope you hear it too. We who follow the risen Christ, we who claim the resurrection, we among all people ought to be the people who are not unraveled by the negatives and broken by what we see. But instead, we ought to wear salvation. We should put on display the new day that is more true than the sinful shadows that lurk still. The truth of Christ's redemption is more real than the thing we call realism. The truth of salvation is a powerful and most true narrative. I love Sundays. I love being together on Sundays for lots of reasons. But over it all, I love that Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every Sunday is a little Easter. Every Sunday is another display of what is most true, that salvation is at hand. The focus of this day is on the victory and the salvation. Here in our church, we're not shy, as you know, to speak of sin and brokenness. I think our confessionals often touch on some deep and, and painful things, sometimes personal and sometimes collective. We bring it, though, at the beginning of the service, and we give it to God, and then we hear God say to us, Christ is raised, and Jesus Christ took care of that and is even now taking care of this. Do not be swallowed up by it. Experience salvation. And then we go on to just have further glorious engagement in freedom. That's our state. That's our permanent condition. We live in the age of resurrection, for resurrection isn't something that happens after we die. Resurrection is what happens when Christ was raised from the dead to life and then raised us up to walk in newness of life. It's already started. I've been resurrected. You've been resurrected. We are alive, alive, alive as our song says, in the Christ of salvation. Pastor Stephanie and I have been, have been blessed over the years to live in a few different places. And I remember years ago living in a little village in Ecuador, and, and the families in our community lived in shacks of twisted tin, sticks, and cardboard. And we were faced daily with the injustice of global economics and questions of corruption, and yet every Sunday morning, those families would come walking out of those Houses with heads held high and with hair combed and with the nicest Sunday outfits and no wrinkles. I could never figure that out. And they did it because they knew they were alive in Christ Jesus. They were not defined by poverty, not defined by the sin of an unjust world. They literally were not concerned with the things I was weighed down by concerning them. They were alive. They were defined by the risen Christ. Each week we'd gather, reminding each other of our condition in worship and celebrating our identity, and the rest of the week glimmered with the truth of our condition, even as we still face struggles. A few years later, we were staying in Kerala, India for a few months, and at that time, there were, there were women literally lining many of the roads with hammers, breaking up big rocks into little rocks. And this was like, had become a big issue. 
that that was the way road construction was happening. It was totally degrading and painful work, inhumane in the heat of the day. But each of the Christian women that I got to know who were forced to do this work would on Sunday come to church with their kids and their husbands and their Bible and their pride and claim the resurrected condition that is their real condition. Did they and organizers fight the labor abuses? Yes. But even while the unjust work continued, they knew absolutely that they were saved already, not in some pie-in-the-sky kind of way, but that very day they were alive and had dignity. Each day of my life in this church, and right now I mean not Sundays, all the other days, I meet people who experience so much hardship and pain. Some days, I must admit, I hear and experience things that shake me up pretty bad. But the journey is made easier for all the strength and confidence and joy I see in so many of those very people who, if defined by sin, couldn't be that way. They are full of hope because Jesus Christ is risen and has destroyed sin and has come to save and is saving already. We already said this, but today Nikki and Renee and others are going on a walk to support survivors of suicide and to push for hope for those deeply struggling with thoughts of suicide. And then later today, we're going to walk for refugees because somewhere between 65 and 80 million people are displaced in the world right now without a safe place to be. Are these shadow walks? Walks that are under the shadow of a morass of a sinful and broken world? No. These are walks that are under the shadow of God's wings and Christ's salvation. We walk in hope and we walk in the light of salvation. The other night in our Justice and Mercy meeting, Deb Convery was saying that she and Sandy Russell Jones were working on an adult ed class on plastics. And Deb said, we decided we're not going to get all into the details of the problem because we all know about the problem. Sure, we can always tease out more details about what is bad, but that's not going to get us anywhere. Instead, we're going we're gonna to design a solutions-focused class on plastics. And I say, yes, Deb and Sandy, amen. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death, so while we need to name the problem, let's not be defined by the problem. Let's be defined by Christ's solutions. Let's live as a people of hope, moving in a direction shaped by our resurrected reality. We have a Savior who, on the night he was betrayed, scorned, beaten, and killed, did not define himself by betrayal and sin and death but rather use that moment as a night to proclaim that he is nourishment, sustenance, liberation, homecoming, and forgiveness. Christ is salvation. And that's the night we heard it. Sometimes I think it's important to remember that even before Jesus defeated death and inaugurated a new age, God was already the God of salvation. And God had already sent mechanisms by which people could live connected to the holy there was a choice then, even before Christ, like there's a choice now, to live as if a new world already existed and was more fully coming all the time, a world ordered and structured and cared for by God. You, you could see that, or you could choose to first see that the world is ordered and structured and run by corrupt people. Both things can be true, but where are you going to start? It makes a huge difference. How do you choose to see the world in this time before Jesus comes again to complete salvation? Are we living in a sinful thing up until he comes, or are we living in a re resurrected, redeemed thing that still has some finishing touches? In Mark 12, Jesus points out to his disciples a poor widow 
who is giving coins to the temple. She's stretching into her impoverished self to do so. She and Jesus, neither are naive that the scribes who helped shape temple life also wrote laws that devoured widows' houses, right? That's in that very passage. Just before we hear about what a great thing she does, we first hear that the scribes are devouring widows' houses through their policies and practices after their husbands die. She's not naive to the brokenness that is in and around the temple. Yet without hesitation, she gives to the temple, claiming the narrative of God's redemption over above the seemingly more real reality of cheating, conniving leaders. It seems to me she knows the true narrative of the world. God is here and God is now, and she claims the truer truth. I want to be like that poor old widow. And I encourage you to consider being like her too. I want to be the kind of person who chooses to believe the narrative of a God of resurrected love, who believes that sin is defeated, who believes that salvation is at hand and Christ comes via the Holy Spirit regularly and Christ will come ultimately to finally fully save and restore. I believe this is a wise approach to life. It is not an opiate of the people to be hopeful. It is actually the only sustainable power of the people. Leaning into the resurrection framework our reality can keep us turning and learning from and then responding to a powerful, wonder-working God. Christ has defeated sin. Let's participate, friends, in our new state, the state of salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.